0: Welcome to The Penguin Podcast. In this episode, there's some strong language. This is a friendly warning in case there are people nearby who may be offended. Hello and welcome to The Penguin Podcast. I'm David Padil and I'm delighted to be joined by an award-winning TV producer, but more importantly, the writer of eight novels, all of which have ended up on the bestseller lists. It's Jane Fallon. Jane, welcome.
1: Thank you. Pleasure to be here.
0: Great pleasure to have you here. Jane is here to talk about her latest book, Faking Friends. Jane has also brought along, according to Penguin Podcast Edition, a number of objects that have influenced and inspired her writing. Before we get on to those, give us a brief synopsis of Faking Friends.
1: Okay, so our heroine Amy is an actress and she's been working in New York on a series doing a tiny part for a few months. And at the beginning of the book, she finds out that her character is going to be written out, so she's lost her job effectively and she decides to come home for a surprise weekend She arrives back in London. She goes to the flat that she shares with her fiancé, and she realizes very quickly that there's another woman been staying there. This isn't really giving anything away because we find out very early that actually it's her best friend Mel, who is now. That isn't really a big spoiler because it's on the
0: back of the book.
1: It is. That's true. It is on the back of the book. (laughs) But also, you find out very quickly in the book. So yeah. So effectively, in one weekend, she's lost her job, her fiancé, her best friend, and her home. Yeah. She decides not to confront them, but to try and sort of piece her life back together and actually get some of her self-esteem back before she actually tells them what she knows. So she decides to carry on, pretend as if everything is normal, pretend she's still living in New York, and also... Maybe mess with them a bit at the same time.
0: I'm going to hesitate to use a word, the, the phrase. And the phrase is chick lit. I'm not going to use that word, partly because I don't think it is that, this genre, but also because I noticed in an interview that you did once, you got really pissed off with a friend of yours, someone who was a friend of yours, when you first got a contract with Penguin, because that person said, oh, no, you're not going to write chick lit, are you? Is that right?
1: That is right. And funnily enough, that that sort of inspired the first object that I brought today, actually, which is the cover of my first book, Get Me to Matthew, because... She was one of my two best friends. She, I'd known her for, I don't know, at that point, maybe 18 years. Mm. And she knew that my lifelong ambition had been to be a novelist. She knew my personality inside out. And I hadn't seen her for a long time because we'd both been working and i just found out that i got a deal with Penguin. Mm. And we had lunch and I said to her, you're never going to guess what's happened. My book's been picked up. And there wasn't even a second where she even faked being happy for me. She instantly screwed up her face and said oh, it's not going to be chicklet, is it?
0: But why Why does she say that? I mean, I, why would she assume that?
1: Well, that's my point. She 100% knew that's not my sensibility. When I said, no, it's not really, it's not a romance, you know, that's not really my kind of thing, but it will probably get called chiclet because I'm a commercial woman's writer.
0: Well, that's sort of what I wanted to say, which is that that's a box that women writing about contemporary women and relationships get put into, mm-hmm. but you yourself have used the phrase... Chic noir to describe your work, and, and, yeah. and your work is pretty dark.
1: It is quite dark, yeah. It was actually in a couple of reviews early on that they called it chic noir and I rather liked it. And then I kind of worried subsequently that people would expect there to be a dead body or something in the middle and there isn't. Mm. But I think it is darker probably than traditional chick lit, and the focus of my book is never a romance. I'm not that interested in romance mm. as a subject, really.
0: Yeah, um, And that's partly why I was worried, to to mention it, because I would say the main subject, not the main subject, but certainly a main subject in your books. Having read this one and having looked at the plots of of most of the others, is is revenge. That is a big,
1: yeah, it's a big theme. It's a a big theme of
0: yours, and so therefore, I didn't want to say something that might lead to you feeling vengeful towards me, (laughs) in the way that I guess you did feel towards this woman because you're not friendly with her anymore. Is that right?
1: Well, yeah, exactly. Because I just thought, well, you do know me, so you know that that's not my sensibility. So it's you're just not happy for me.
0: And betrayal, of course, is a big theme as well, because revenge and betrayal kind of go hand in hand. And the betrayal appears, certainly in Faking Friends, I don't know about the other books, but the betrayal isn't really infidelity, although infidelity seems to feature, but it's really between friends, isn't it? It's the betrayal, as it was in that moment with your friend, is a friend who you think, well, this is this person and they know me and they have this hopes and expectations for me. But they don't. That's really what you felt in that moment, I guess.
1: Yeah, it was exactly that. And I just thought, well, we're clearly not friends. Yeah. You know, if you can't be happy for me, I think that's a very telling thing with friendship is if you're genuinely happy when something good happens to someone, then they're your friend.
0: OK. That makes them not chick lit in another way, in, in that the action, whether it be negative action or whatever, tends to be between the women rather than between the men and the women. Possibly yeah. not in getting rid of Matthew, I don't know about... Uh,
1: well, no, it, so, it actually is. Yeah, it actually... that is about an unlikely friendship that forms between two women, one of whom is the mistress of the other one's husband. Mm. Yeah, I just find that dynamic sort of more compelling generally than will-they-won't-they stuff, which, you know, I'm not that excited about. And I really like messed-up relationships, and I think there's something very disturbing about thinking that our friends aren't necessarily who Mm. we think they are because, you know, you rely on them so much.
0: Yeah. Why do you think... You might have had a problem with the word chick lit. I mean, is it dismissive as a phrase, do you think?
1: I don't even really have a problem with it. I just don't necessarily think I fall into that category. I think when chick lit started, I mean, it is a kind of annoying phrase, but it's become something other than the words now, if you know what I mean.
0: Except Jane Austen is chick lit.
1: Well, she would be if she came out now. They would call her chick lit. I mean, I think at the beginning it was something quite specific. It was first person woman in her twenties and thirties looking for a husband right. or wanting a baby. It was a very sort of specific thing. Yeah. But it somehow expanded out to cover anything that women write about relationships that's at all commercial.
0: Yeah. Um and yeah. I just
1: think that's a bit lazy.
0: Yeah. Before we talk more about the book, let's hear a bit of it. Right at the start, in fact, from the beginning of the book, where we meet the protagonist, Amy, who's an actress, as you've said. Let's hear a clip now.
2: In New York, I've been filming a new series that has just made its primetime network TV debut. My big break after years of second prostitute or woman at station. Sometimes, even just woman. I've made a living, don't get me wrong. Sort of. Most of it working in actor friendly call centres, to be completely honest. When I say big break, I mean I am a properly named character who appears in every episode. In this, the first season, at least. And not that I'm one of the stars, I'm part of the ensemble. I bear an uncanny resemblance to the English actress who plays the lead, which led to the happy stroke of good fortune that was me being cast to play her big sister. Actually, bear an uncanny resemblance is a bit of an overstatement. By that, I mean we both have near-black, shiny hair, brown eyes and a roundish face. We're close enough. And the English accent swung it. I say I appear in every episode. I should add, up till now because the big sister of the hero English detective is about to get bumped off by the very serial killer the detective is hunting for. And I only found out the day before yesterday, when the latest script was issued, and there I was being strangled on page 36. The first thing I did was try to phone Jack. There was no reply. So I went out for a few drinks with sympathetic castmate friends instead, and that's when my plan for a surprise visit home was born.
0: That was Faking Friends, written by my guest Jane Fallon and read by Sally Scott and Kristen Atherton. Actually, there's some interesting stuff just in that bit that I hadn't thought about, which is I think your protagonist, and I wonder if this is true generally, it already sets herself up as quite low status there. Even when she talks about being an actress, yeah. she talks about being having the secondary mm-hmm. part. There's a big sister who's the the main part. It seemed to me that throughout the book, Amy has put herself in this position of normally accepting that there's someone else who's going to be the star in whatever relationship she's in. And obviously that's Mel in general. She's quite of herself liable to put herself down and to think of herself as as holding the second part.
1: I think in a lot of relationships there's a star and there's a cheerleader. If you don't stick to those roles, then I think that friendship can struggle. The fact that Amy is living her life as an actress, I think she feels guilty that Mel didn't didn't pull it off. Mel has a job in an insurance office and it's a perfectly okay job, but it's certainly not the glamorous lifestyle that she thought she was going to have.
0: There's a lot of complexity there, I think, which is, yes, most people would think that you come from a television production background and you know that someone who plays essentially second-string parts, that's quite... there's a lot of drudgery, a lot of anxiety in that job.
1: If you're not a star, which 99.999% of people who want to be actors aren't, then you're constantly thinking when is my next job you're often cast as as she says in that clip something without a name mm, you're yeah, just, yeah you know you woman or no but that was really and... funny that's
0: really funny throughout the book amy's constantly being offered once she loses this bigger part woman in part, woman in part woman, woman with dog mm. i particularly like
1: and i remember actually from when i worked in tv that i would always feel really bad about those parts and and we would always have conversations about, shall we give them a name just to mm. make the actor feel better about themselves? Mm. But then you have a random thing on the credits. You know, yeah. you've got Dorothy, and people are going, well, who yeah. was Dorothy? <laughs> I didn't see a <laughs> Dorothy. And actually, it yeah. was a woman in pub.
0: Yeah. Well, actually, when you're writing a novel, I've found that sometimes you have characters who turn up just as a cipher or to find one part, you think, like, well, I don't want to give this character a name Mm -hmm. because then the reader will think, well, this person will be coming back later on or whatever. Or
1: they'll be confused about why they need to know this person's name because they should be worrying about them. No,
0: exactly, yeah. So we talked about this already, but before writing books you were a TV producer. But it's your experience in TV that allows you to write about the minutiae of what it's like being an actress, I think. And there's a great bit uh, where we hear about how ridiculous it is when Amy has to shoot one of the final scenes of her US show. Let's take a listen to that now.
2: On Tuesday night, I am strangled 14 times from three different camera angles in a very smelly alley next door to the studios. I'm worn out with screaming and fighting off Ryan, the actor who, it turns out, is playing the killer. When the call sheet was issued, I imagine a collective gasp went up among the cast and crew because Ryan's character, Peterson, is the head of our fictional police precinct, boss of my fictional sister. You couldn't make it up. Or rather, you could, but why would you? Because he's twice my size and not a little clumsy, I'm battered and bruised by the end, and several takes are ruined by him suddenly stepping out of character to say, oh god, I'm so sorry, or did I hurt you? I hurt you, didn't I? Before doing it all over again. On Wednesday, I film a scene in a bar that immediately precedes my doomed walk home. And then, all that's left, are two street shots in Midtown on Thursday night, following my journey from the exterior of the bar to the place where I'm dragged off the pavement and into the alley. Filming is a bit like assembling a jigsaw. Consecutive scenes are shot days and miles apart. You turn a corner on 43rd Street in Manhattan and end up in an alleyway next to Silvercup Studios in Queens. You exit a bar that's a permanent set in the studio and walk out onto 51st Street. It's a miracle anything ever cuts together, but it somehow does, for the most part.
0: That was an extract from Faking Friends, written by Jane Fallon and read by Sally Scott and Kristen Atherton. How long did you work in TV?
2: Well, I worked for an
1: agent's for a while, but then I got my first job in TV in, I think, 1991, and then I gave up in
0: 2006. But so. well, you were working, was that mainly on EastEnders or on loads of things?
1: No, loads of things.
0: So what, yeah. name a few other things you worked.
1: Well, I made This Life.
0: Well, I mean, that's, like, massively, I would have thought, in a way, important in terms of what yeah. you've gone on to write.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I mean, that, that and teachers... So, yeah, those things, stylistically, I feel like, are very... Uh, my sensibilities. Yeah. Um,
0: so your next object is to do with EastEnders, though, even though you did loads of other stuff.
1: It is. (laughs) It is, only because I was trying to find an object that sort of summed up TV and that was the only thing I could come up with, but it's... um... I was at EastEnders for I think two and a half years. I started as a script editor there, having been a script editor elsewhere before. Wait, and...
0: so, what what year when were you on EastEnders?
1: Uh, I was there for the Phil Sharon Grant love triangle. Oh, pretty good. Yeah, like, that's a, good a pretty right. high point. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, not it Den good. and Angie,
0: but I would say it's the next. No, it's
1: post post Den and Angie. And then also the other big thing in my time was the um, Bianca and. David Wicks, her right. father turning up, and all yeah.
0: And that. yeah, slightly out of my comfort zone with that second okay. one. Right. But I think the first one I I do know about. Yeah, it yeah. was big. It yeah. was big.
1: Um, so it was a good era. So and I le when I left there, I was a uh, been a producer for a year on the show. So I was there for two and a half years altogether. And when you leave, they always throw you a really lovely party and give you an extraordinary amount of lovely things. But one thing they always give everybody when they leave is a an Albert Square street sign with your name on it. Yeah. So that's my object that I bought is yeah. in pride of place in my office I'm very fond of it.
0: Yeah no I should say for anyone who obviously hasn't seen one of these things which would be most people. It says London Borough of Walford Albert Square E20 and then next to that Jane Fallon as if it's sort of part of the address.
1: Yes I don't uh, quite know how it works but yeah.
0: Yeah no that's that that is brilliant. I mean obviously everything you worked on would have been about human relationships but do you think the experience particularly of working on a soap opera is helpful writing the kind of books you want to write because you've talked you talked right at the start before actually which the recording on I talked about how this book I found it incredibly easy to read now a lot of people think that's not a great thing I think it is a great thing I yeah, think I think I think the book should always be like something you want to carry on reading but obviously that's part of what a soap opera does as well is like, you know, it's it really hooks you in and makes you want to carry on watching it.
1: The most important thing probably that it did is make me think about cliffhangers. Yeah. Because on a soap you're obsessed with cliffhangers. Everything is about making sure they tune in next week. And I think I sort of always do approach my stories like that. I keep trying to find big twists that will keep people hooked or you know, big moments that will keep people hooked. Yeah. When I started we were doing I think two episodes a week, yeah, and then we moved to three a week. Right. And you have to find a phenomenal amount of story. So it really hones your skills. You know, obviously there's there's the script editors, there's the writers and the producers, and you're all trying to come up with stories. Mm. So I think it really helps you sort of hone those skills about wringing every last bit of plot out of a character.
0: Turning back to the book, I'm going to ask a weird question that I sometimes get asked, but I think it's worth asking in these terms, which is often all writers get asked, where do you get your ideas from? Now, I'm not just going to say where do you get your ideas from, but what I mean is, in terms of these books, do you look first towards the villain? Because to the person who's done something wrong, do you start with that? Do you start with, okay, what's the betrayal and I'll work back from that or do you start with the protagonist?
1: Somewhere in between. I I don't really start with either the villain or the protagonist. I start with the betrayal, actually. I always try and think what awful thing can someone have done to someone that I haven't written about before that's interesting.
0: I mean, and that is the inciting incident in this book is she comes back from the US and she discovers her boyfriend is sleeping yeah. with her best friend so you begin with like here's the terrible thing and who's the well, person
1: it, sort of it was with that one I think I began with a relationship I wanted to right. I wanted to write about lifelong best friends and I'd been thinking a lot about those golden children
0: I think your golden children point is also borne out by your old next it is. object.
1: It is. My next object, which is, how tragic is this, is a postcard telling me that I've won a bronze medal, bronze dancing medal. Yeah. Commended. commended.
0: So this was something that you did so basically, when I to the golden children yeah. from the, your bronze position.
1: So when I was a child, I think like a lot of young girls, I used to spend a lot of time dancing and doing gymnastics and all that kind of thing. Wherever I went, there was always a girl, nearly always blonde, nearly always long, straight hair, which I envied with a passion, um, who was good at everything. She was sweet. The teachers loved her. She was good at acting, dancing, singing, everything. She'd be in the local paper every week. And I, I always kind of wondered what happened to those girls when they got older because I didn't ever see any of them become, you know, major stars. And I wondered what it was like to grow up to having been such a focus of a small town when mm. you were young and then grow up and just have a very ordinary life when everyone used to treat you like you were a superstar, and it's, I think it's a bit more apparent maybe in American schools where they have, you know, the the homecoming king and queen and uh, they have boys who are football stars and they really are treated like stars.
2: Mm.
1: And then they leave school and, and they just get a normal job because actually they can't cut it in that profession in the real world. Mm. And there's something that seems very sad about that, that your school days are the best days of your life and everything else is downhill from there.
2: Mm.
1: And that's really where I came up with the character of Mel. Mm. She was one of those girls. She was good at everything and you know, tap-danced her way through her childhood, really, and and now has ended up with an incredibly normal life but resenting every moment of mm. it. I thought that was just quite an interesting character to have to then, you know, her very steady friend who'd been there beside her and not doing anything remarkable. Mm. It's, it's the torts and the hair, really. Yeah. Ends up doing something much more interesting than she does.
0: But if I could put something to you, mm. when you described it just then, I felt only sort of like I felt quite a lot of sympathy for the golden child, Mm -hmm. who's like, you know, was a star when they were young and had all this stuff, you know, put around them, put a halo around them to make them feel like they were the best thing ever and then get out into the real world and it's not like that. And the way you put it then was, I thought, very generous. I would say in the book, it's more like, I mean, you you do towards the end, right at the end in a very interesting scene, I think, where where Mel and Amy talk, Mm -hmm. you start to feel, oh, yeah, I see, I see all that in Mel, but... In the body of the book, she's kind of awful. Yeah. When you say that, you you don't feel sympathy for her, you don't feel generous towards her because of that experience. You just think this is a terrible person.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's true. And I, because I think they go in two categories: those golden right. children. There are the one. I'm thinking of a very specific girl in my town. God, I wanted to be her, and she was lovely. She right. was sweet, and she was lovely. And her, I do feel sympathy for because I can't imagine what her life turned into really because she was such a little town superstar but lovely but I also knew girls who were like that who were the town superstar who were awful and it went to their head and it went to their head at the age of 10 Mm. and it was they were still like that when they were 17 and then you can't help but feeling a certain amount of schadenfreude that they're not suddenly you know the new global superstar.
0: Yeah well that's that I think is one of the things that I'm really interested in which is you know most people are not stars Mm. most people are not golden children and so i think part of the reasons, maybe one of the reasons why your books have been i mean i know they're not all exactly like this but they all often do have a sense of you know worlds come crashing down Mm -hmm. i wonder if people like that people like to see those people who thought the world was going to be given to them on a plate to have the plate taken away
1: i think that's a very british thing actually generally to feel like that
0: One of the reasons why, and I know I happen to know that you're a big watcher of these or certainly used to be in your household, why we like reality TV, Mm -hmm. is that reality TV is a great microcosm for seeing that happen, isn't it? There's often people in reality TV, especially in Big Brother or whatever, but that's probably even out of date now, but like Love Island, I imagine, where there are people, women and men, but I would say more often women, who don 't realize that they 're coming across as someone who thinks the world owes them everything that they 're obviously a star they 're obviously the most glamorous person in there, and the country outside is hating them and yeah. just wants them to fail and yeah. wants them to be kicked out Do you see what I'm saying? i 'm saying that 's a very powerful do. thing yeah. and I feel that a bit with with this book that I feel like you can't you really want mel 's life to not be Be what she wants it to be because you can't bear it. She's been
1: so horrible. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. I think it's tricky, the reality TV thing, but now I also think it's dangerous because they're so controlled.
0: They are so fascinating, partly because of that good and evil clarity. Yeah, they're like
1: absolutely pure dramas. Yeah,
0: they present a very clear idea of who's going to and who's evil. But in a way, a novel is exactly the space in which you might get greater complexity, and I think you do in this novel, but there are times when you, when you don't as well, for, for, I think, for a good reason, which is that there are times when you just do want to see the hammer fall.
1: Yeah, I think, you, you know? I think heroes and villains are good. Yeah. You know, I think they shouldn't be too black and white. A bit like getting rid of Matthew where the heroine was a woman having an affair with a married man, who generally would be my worst sort of person, her and him. But I wanted to take someone that you shouldn't like mm. and make you like her by the end. Uh, quite like having a villain that you end up liking
0: yeah yeah I love Um, that
1: you know because I think people are more complex really than
0: well I think but I think that's one of the things that that people again who don't read your books and maybe don't read what you might call contemporary women's fiction don't realize which is that I mean my favorite writer is John Updike the American writer John Updike and all of John Updike's work all his great work is just about infidelity Mm. all of it and the reason it's. I think it's brilliant, is that he takes this scenario which is often thought of as like, OK, this is, the, this is sort of whatever, soap opera or, or whatever, and he makes it in all... He renders it in all its complexity.
1: Any situation you take like that, any kind of betrayal, there are um, people react in a million different ways. It's never just, oh, my God, I hate you, get out of my life. I think it's much more complex. Than well, that. of course,
0: in this book, in a long way round, it's the journey that Amy needs to go on. Yeah. That this very terrible thing, apparently very terrible thing that happens to her, it's the thing that leads her to a new life and a yeah, new it's self-understanding.
1: Her up for a, for a life where she can actually be happy and, and succeed and enjoy succeeding, as and, opposed and, to always feeling guilty about it.
0: And know what a real friend is. Exactly, yeah. Uh, I'm going to bring up Ricky. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know Jane's partner, is Ricky Gervais, the comedian and writer. Partly because... <laughs> something just occurred to me as we were speaking, which is there's a lot about friendship in your books and and the place of peace, I would say, that Amy gets to is that, is knowing who friends are. Uh, Ricky does this thing with you on Twitter, which is constantly to show pictures of you on your own and say, here's Jane with all her friends. Yes. Does that piss you off?
1: Uh, Well. uh,
0: (laughs) As someone who's very interested in friends and friendship.
1: Yeah, but he's... I mean, it makes me laugh, actually. but, yeah, it's um, funny. but I it's sort But of, there is a kind of truth behind it. I have always been a massive loner. Right. I do spend a lot of time on my own, and I've always found the complexities of friendship for myself actually very difficult.
0: The other thing I, I, I recognised, in fact, texted you the other day, but you didn't know it was me, um, <laughs> uh, from reading this book, from knowing, perhaps I should say, I have known Jane and Ricky for quite a long time, is I recognize some of the flats that Amy has to go and see when she has to downscale her life a bit. I'm pretty sure the King's Cross flat is one that you used to live in, isn't that right? It's actually Where... not quite
1: as bad as the one that we used to live in, to right. be honest. It's close, but the one we used to live in was all of that horror and above a dodgy sauna. Oh, so, right. yeah, and the doorbells were next to each other. The doors were next to each other for the downstairs sauna, in inverted commas, and yeah. our front door. And so at three o'clock in the morning, the, my bell would ring. It'd be a man. Massage, massage. Yeah. It was just absolutely horrific
0: yeah and that was also where the sink was that ricky would that piss was in.
1: yeah that's where the sink was but yeah I, I always you know i like to no no of I course i mean
0: own. i'm a writer you it, use what you can what are your literary inspiration yeah, but, no. who, who is your inspiration uh
1: i think probably my biggest inspiration i would always say was faye weldon yeah the reason being that when i was young i would read a lot and i i was in that sort of awkward transition of going from kids books to adult books and I was reading a lot of kind of classics and stuff, but I hadn't really found a style that felt like me, that felt like it spoke to me. And I found, annoyingly, I can never remember if it was Praxis or Puffball, but I found one of them on one of my older sister's bookshelves when I was about 15. And just the minute I started reading it, it just blew my mind, really. And I just thought, I never realised that you could write in such a conversational way. Yeah. They were very of their time, I think, the early ones, in a really good way. Mm. They were very spiky, quite black but actually they were always about relationships and quite funny and quite nasty at
0: times. Right.
1: And just really readable. I mean that word came really, really readable.
0: Yeah. So your last object, which is to do with writing in a way because it's got some writing on it, uh, is a kind of weird object. So I just think you should describe it because it's hard to describe. Okay, so
1: the reason I chose this is because a lot of Faking Friends was written. I travelled a lot last year, like almost continuously and A lot of Faking Friends was written when I was in a strange hotel room or on a plane or Mm. whatever.
0: I find Um, those places not bad to write in.
1: I think they're great. Planes are amazing. Planes particularly,
0: because you haven't got... the fucking internet. Yeah, exactly. Uh, unless yeah. Uh, you're travelling, which you might be, in, in such high first class <laughs> that you're online. No, I'm, I'm, but... never, <laughs> online. I'm never
1: online. I'm But so I went to a lot of new cities, partly because Ricky was touring, basically, yeah. and, we, and we went to a lot of new cities all over the world. And I have a slight obsession with Christmas trees and Christmas ornaments. And so I would collect everywhere I go. Every new city I go to, I try to find the best, tackiest, touristy Christmas decoration, whatever time of year it is, to bring home and add to my tree. And so I have this tree, which is known as the Tree of Hanging Freaks, um, and every year it just gets more and more insanely covered with nonsense.
0: Yeah. It looks amazing. I mean, the central one that I want to point out is, is that a lobster with the word twat written on it? It's actually a it? crab. It's with a, a crab.
1: A, no, with the word twat. In it. And uh, that I didn't buy. That was made for us by Holly Dempsey, who was in Derek. Oh, OK. Uh, because Derek featured twat, crab, someone writing twat. Oh, I see. So, okay. so there is a reason thing. for that. Yes, there is a reason for this. Right. But then there are various, there's my happy Danish elf. there. Yeah.
0: There's it looks a bit a... like... I do you know Hieronymus Bosch's The Garden of Earthly Delights? I do, you know? do it's, yes. Yeah, I think Not it looks well. like, it's sort of a bit like that, sort of upside Isn't down. It, it's a it looks you, a aren't? little bit like that. Like, I mean, I know it's a Christmas tree, but at the same time it looks like a sort of... There's a lot of hanging, weird, bulbous weirdness, things yeah. in that picture.
1: There's a lot of weirdness. There are a lot of basically... We spent a lot of time in Scandinavia, so there are a lot of elves and trolls.
0: Have you written and... one of your books set at Christmas?
1: No, I
0: haven't. If you're obsessed with Christmas, can I I just put this to you and then take a small cut if you write this book? (laughs) Uh, Your book's about betrayal and revenge, right? So one of the things I think about Christmas is it's often a time of too much emotional investment. Mm, It's a microcosm of... of yeah.
1: have trauma, yeah.
0: Exactly, and, and I remember when I was younger, I mean, I'm, as you know, from a Jewish family, but I was with various girlfriends who celebrated Christmas when I was younger, and what I noticed was, having come from a family that didn't really celebrate Christmas, was the tension mm-hmm. around Christmas Day of, like, and on Christmas as well. You know, that someone was at some point going to say, you've done this, and it's Christmas. Mm-hmm. So, that's my point, is if some big betrayal were to happen and revealed at Christmas, then you'd double down on the it's on the size of idea. the betrayal. A, yeah, no, it's... Uh, and, you know, an affair discovered at cre- Anyway, no, I'm done. You know, hey, no point. <laughs> it's the just block there. When you were <laughs> I'm just putting it on the table there, <laughs> you there for you. But that okay? Well, I, I that's a that's a, an exceptional. I, I wish you'd brought in the whole tree. I know, well, it's I know not I know there I've all year, seat, is it?
1: No, it's not. Although I am always very sad when I have to take it down.
0: That's the Christmas diversion. But are you writing another book now already?
1: I am. Yeah. Oh yes, I am. Can okay, you ab-
0: tell me what it's about, vaguely or not? It's about revenge.
1: Uh, well, there's an element of revenge in <laughs> it. Basically, it's about a work relationship
0: right.
1: and about two people who have competed for the same job and one of them has got it but un- not realising that the other person was even interested in it in the first place and, mm. and totally stuff, much more.
0: stuff bad stuff happens, bad as, stuff happens. As, a, as a result yeah. so Jane Fallon it's been really really lovely having you on the Penguin Podcast thank you very much
1: thank you so much Nadia and Syed are two ordinary young people attempting to do an extraordinary thing to fall in love in a world turned upside down by war when they're forced to leave their home country, whether they can sustain and manage their emotions in such troubled times are questions they both begin to ask themselves.
0: Nadia and Said were, back then, always in possession of their phones. In their phones were antennas, and these antennas sniffed out an invisible world, as if by magic, a world that was all around them and also nowhere, transporting them to places distant and near, and to places that had never been and would never be. For many decades after independence, a telephone line in their city had remained a rare thing, the waiting list for a connection long, the teams that installed the copper wires and delivered the heavy handsets, greeted and revered and bribed like heroes.
2: Exit West is a tale of love, loyalty, war, displacement and growth and is now available to download from Audible, iTunes and Kobo.